Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, they had a big presence in the Hawaii National Parks. Yes. In Haleakala, they removed invasive plants and feral animals such as pigs and goats. <laughs> How did the pigs and goats get up to the top of Haleakala? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> if, I'm a, if I'm a feral pig, I'm not sure that uh, going to the top of the highest mountain on the island is, is what I'm going to do. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> going to the beach, I think. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today's episode is about a topic that we have mentioned over and over again throughout our episodes, the Civilian Conservation Corps and the role it played in developing our national and state parks. Established in 1933 during the Great Depression, the idea behind the CCC was to put young men back to work, while at the same time improving our parks and national forests. But this nine-year program had far-reaching effects beyond what we see today throughout our public lands. We will be explaining what the CCC was, what the men of the CCC accomplished, and what their lives were like living and working in our country's undeveloped wilderness areas. Plus, we'll tell you about a program started 30 years ago to honor the CCC workers that has park goers setting off on a quest to find and photograph all the CCC statues that are being installed throughout the country. So on this 90th anniversary of the creation of the CCC, we celebrate the men who were involved in this remarkable program and their many achievements that we all still enjoy today. So Matt and I recently visited a state park in Oregon called Silver Falls State Park. It's uh, south of Portland, beautiful state park. But the first thing we noticed and the first thing we said when we entered the park is that it reminded us of a national park. Yeah, it did. It looked very much like a national park, didn't it? Yes. And it didn't occur to us at the time, but turns out that it was because of the work that the CCC did in this particular park. Yeah, we found out later that CCC Company 611 came to Silver Creek Falls in 1935. And then over the next seven years, the men of the CCC would build trails, buildings, bridges, stairways, rock walls. They also built several rustic-style park structures in the South Falls area, 
as well as trails leading to the Ten Falls along Silver Creek Canyon area. And I think when anyone says it feels like a national park, part of the thing that they're responding to is is some of the work that the CCC did back then, like all of the things that have those rustic big timbers and the stone, the native stone that they put in stairways and retaining walls. It just has that national park feel. It does. Big and chunky rocks, boulders, logs. Would you call... Some of the stuff they built, would you call it architecture style? Well, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't... <laughs> so you're guessing is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I would. Parkitecture is the nickname of the architectural style known as National Park Service Rustic that started with the birth of the national parks in the late 19th century. It showcased the use of native materials, um, natural whole logs, and structures built by hand. They need to bring that style back. I know. <laughs> yeah, they do. I, I love that style. The big timbers, big rocks. Yeah. Yes, if we ever build a house from scratch, which we never have in our entire lives, if we ever do, that's what it would look like. Big and chunky. But not built by hand. At least not built by my hands. <laughs> Probably not built by anybody's hand. <laughs> okay. All machine built. Right, right. Okay. All right, Matt, so let's dive in. What was the CCC program? We should probably explain that first. Okay, what the heck was it? Well, first of all, it lasted from 1933 to 1942. So 1933, of course, it was created during the Great Depression, and it was part of the New Deal program at the time that helped lift America out of the Depression. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he established the CCC in 1933, just one month into his presidency. So like we said, it was part of his New Deal program. And so what it did was it allowed single men between the ages of 18 and 25 to enlist in a work program to improve America's public lands, forests, and parks. Right. So the purpose of it was to implement new conservation projects and to provide financial relief to these unemployed young men and their families. The CCC enrollees traveled across federal and state lands to complete a wide range of projects, including road construction, flood and erosion control, firefighting, and planting trees. And this was under the guidance of the U.S. Forest Service, the National Park Service, and the Departments of the Interior and Agriculture. Yeah, it was a new experiment for the government to create this program and to have different agencies of the government work together. So this program, there were four departments of the government that worked together, labor that recruited the men, war, which operated the camps, and then the agriculture and interior departments, which organized and supervised the work projects. Right. A huge undertaking, as you can imagine, because not only did they have to determine what projects these men were going to work on, but then they had to house them and feed them, which required a huge amount of coordination. One of the goals of the CCC was to restore morale at the time, there was 25% unemployment for all men and then much higher rates for poorly educated teenagers. So these enrollees, they were young men who were in desperate need of jobs to provide for their families. These young men, they came from families on government assistance. Uh, a lot of them couldn't read or write, uh, and they would enlist for six-month terms. 
And during that six months, they got paid $30 a month. $25 a month automatically went back to their home, to their families, to their dependents, brothers and sisters and parents. Right. Because again, these men were single. So they did not have wives. They didn't have children of their own. They are now supporting their, like you said, Matt, their moms and dads and their brothers and sisters. And because they made $30 per month, they were called dollar a day boys. Yeah. So this program not only helped young men that were in the program, but it spread these resources across their families. And and that was a fantastic thing during the Depression. Well, exactly. And it wasn't just a paycheck. So these men who enrolled, they also received hands-on training and education if they wanted to, which later helped them find permanent employment and also prepared them to enter the military. They organized these groups of men into companies of about 200, and then they sent them to camps all across the United States. So one of the logistics problems in the United States at the time was transportation. So the U.S. Army helped solve some of the early logistical problems. Most of the unemployed men were in eastern cities, and much of the conservation work happened in the West. So the Army organized the transportation of thousands of new enrollees to working camps across the country. Right. And by July 1st, 1933, so the the program had only been in existence for less than half of a year. Already by then, 1,433 working camps had been established and more than 300,000 men had been put to work. It was the most rapid peacetime mobilization in American history. Now, I know we make a big deal about the CCC and, you know, it happened 90 years ago. And and so we're so far removed from it, both in time and, and knowing what they did. When we did the research here, it is remarkable what they accomplished. And we learned a lot of things that we had no idea of before doing the research, things that they did. And we'll just mention a few highlights. Yeah. For instance, they created 711 state parks. Right. And when we say created... We mean they built these parks from nothing. At that time, there were quite a few states that didn't have any state parks, and they wanted to you know, start having more and more state parks. So the CCC came in and literally started from scratch and built these 711 new state parks. And they built pretty much almost everything that you see at Smoky Mountains National Park, Big Bend National Park. They did incredible amounts of work in the Grand Canyon, uh, Teddy Roosevelt National Park, Zion, Haleakala, Shenandoah, Petrified Forest, Glacier, Acadia. I mean, the list just goes on and on. They built roads, trails, bridges, retaining walls, guardrails, park structures. Right. So if you think about, and I know we have talked a lot about these, but every single national park and national monument that was in existence in the 1930s. They came in and worked there. So I don't think there was a single park, national park, that has been untouched by the CCC. Now, of course, there were parks that were created later after this program ended. And there is kind of a difference when you visit some of those parks. It doesn't have that same feel as you'll see in the parks that were that were touched by the CCC. There were nine classifications of the work that they did in public lands. They did structural improvements, transportation, erosion control, flood control, forest culture, 
landscape and recreation, another category that they called range, which <laughs> meant elimination of predatory animals, wildlife, and then miscellaneous. Right. And it's interesting because under the transportation heading, what that meant was they built bridges, they built roads, and the landscape and recreation, as you can imagine, it was building trails in our parks and things like that where people could recreate. So one thing I didn't know, Matt, is that the CCC planted 3.5 billion trees between 1933 and 1942, which is more than half of the total amount of trees planted in America as part of reforestation efforts. And America's national forests were pretty much decimated at the time from logging and fires and urban development. So planting these trees was very closely associated with the CCC. In fact, a lot of people called the men in this program Roosevelt's Tree Army. So just think of what our country would look like had they not planted these 3.5 billion trees. Yeah, they also spent 6.5 million days fighting fires. Now, that's calculated in man hours. Yes, and that's another thing I wasn't aware of, that they were firefighters, and they did a lot of fire prevention work. They built 97,000 miles of fire roads. They removed dead trees and other inflammable material, and they constructed fire breaks by clearing woodland strips. Yes, and because they were already out working in the forest, one of the CCC's unique contributions was its ability to become readily available, easily mobilized firefighting teams. When fires broke out, the men were willing and able to use hose axes, saws, pumps, and bulldozers against the blaze. Yeah, they were out there and they were ready to go. Yeah, I guess if you are busy in these natural areas creating trails and structures and a fire comes along, you, you drop what you're doing. And on top of fighting the fires, they built more than 3,000 fire lookout towers. I know. I'm guessing a lot of the fire lookout towers that we have hiked to were built by the CCC. And now I want to go back and look them all up because that is something that we've tried to do over the past two summers is hike to um, a lot of the fire lookout towers here in Washington State. Yeah, yeah, that's tough work also. Obviously, the lookout towers are at the highest point in a, a general area. And so not only do you have to get up there to work, but taking all the materials up there. Uh, yeah, so that, that was an incredible feat in and of itself. A few other statistics. They built 48,000 bridges, 13,500 cabins and dwellings, 360,000 miles of telephone lines, and 707,000 miles of forest roads. Plus 142,000 miles of foot trails, over 101,000 acres of campground development, 13.3 million acres of insect control work, and almost 1 billion fish stocked. Who knew? And here is a trivia fact, if you're ever in a trivia contest. The CCC launched the American ski industry. So in the 1930s, downhill skiing was not a thing in America yet. There weren't any dedicated ski trails, let alone things like uh, rope toes or ski lifts. But thanks to the CCC, America got its first ski runs in the 1930s. The workers cut New England trails with names like Stowe, Wildcat, Cannon, and Thunderbolt. 
And out west, the CCC workers also cut the first ski runs in Sun Valley, Idaho. Wow, that that's really something. Again, like we said, when we did the research here, the list of accomplishments of this organization is pretty pretty remarkable. All right, so let's talk about how young men became part of the CCC. Now, for the typical CCC enrollee, making it to a work camp was the culmination of a fairly lengthy selection process. First, he would have applied to his local selection agency and then waited for a period of up to two months until his application had been processed. If he was accepted, he was sent to a conditioning camp, usually at an army post, where he was physically examined, vaccinated, clothed, and put through the paces of army discipline and hard labor. Now, if he measured up to their rigorous standards, he was formally enrolled, took an oath of obedience, and was sent to a work camp. I like the oath of obedience part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have we to start need- <laughs> doing that at home. I was just going to say, we need that in our <laughs> oh, house. Do I'm going to need yeah. you to sign an oath of obedience <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to me. Well, as soon as, you, as, as soon as you state your oath of obedience, <laughs> I'll sign your oath of obedience. Men would enroll for a six-month commitment, and they could renew up to four times. So they could have a total stint of two years. Now, all of the re-enlisting enrollees were given a six-day leave of absence with full pay between their tours of duty, and that was enough time to get home to see their families, even if for just a day or so. Yeah, and I did read that they were also granted leave throughout their tenure, you know, as a CCC worker. I guess there was a pretty generous policy. However, you have to remember that a lot of these young men are very far from home, like the other side of the country. And so it was difficult for them to get home and see their families. Yeah. So we're going to talk about CCC life, what these men went through, what they did, where they lived, and so on. And we're going to specifically talk about the the men who were stationed in the camps in Zion National Park. The Zion website has just great detail about these men and what their life was like in camp. Yeah, well, one of the things we'll tell you is what they did in the park. They established new trails. They built uh, retaining walls. So they built that retaining wall along the Virgin River. They built buildings, worked on switchbacks below the Zion Mount Carmel Tunnel. And they built both the east and south entrance signs. Like a lot of people, we have our photo taken next to that entrance sign. And if you remember, it's stone and it has a log coming out and on the log is hanging the the Zion sign. And I had no idea that the CCC built those signs back in the 1930s. So these young men, they lived in camps and it was similar to military life. They worked 40 hours a week. The army would blow reveille at 6 a.m. every morning. They would, you know, get up, shower, do calisthenics. They'd eat breakfast. And then they would raise the American flag. So they did that ceremony. And then work began at 8 a.m. every day. Right. At that point, the enrollees were were handed off to National Park Service rangers who supervised their work. And their day lasted until about 5 p.m. with a break for lunch from noon to 1. Dinner would be served at 6 p.m. And then the men would have leisure time to do whatever they wanted to until lights out at 10 p.m. 
Yeah, and then in the evenings, Monday through Friday, they had educational classes, they had sporting events, uh, and, and free time. They could just relax at night. Uh, they also had weekends off. Uh, if they got permission, they would go into town or they would kind of do what they wanted to on, on the weekends. So, Matt, let's talk about one of your favorite subjects. <laughs> Something that's very, very important is food. <laughs> yeah, I guess they fed them pretty well. They did. Food, as you can imagine, for all of these hungry young Boys, I mean, a lot of them were teenagers, boys and men. Food was one of the centerpieces of their camp life. Now, because this is the Great Depression, prior to enrollment, many of them had struggled to make ends meet. And it was common for them to join the CCC weak and undernourished due to a lack of food, little exercise, and very limited access to health services. So these young men, being part of the program, they would get three square meals a day. They would get uh, breakfast and dinner served in the mess hall, and then lunch was either at the mess hall or they'd pack lunches and, and take them with them to the work sites. And it was described as wholesome and stick-to-your-ribs filling. <laughs> a typical breakfast would be stewed prunes. We don't have a lot of stewed prunes No, I, I don't even know yeah, what that like, is. I, I don't <laughs> <laughs> no, if I want those sticking to my ribs. But they also had cereal, ham and eggs, coffee and milk. And then lunch was usually sandwiches, pie and coffee. Mm, I like that. Mm -hmm. And then dinner was substantial with, with plenty of meat and fresh vegetables, followed by fruit and dessert. Does sound pretty good. <laughs> it does. Especially after a hard day of working outside in the forest. A lot of these young men didn't have this at home where they came from. Right. And because of this better nutrition and all the exercise and fresh air that they got, men commonly gained an average of 12 pounds within the first two months at camp. So that is remarkable. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, so they had uh, housing for them. Now, most of these camps, they started out as tent camps, uh, but they realized <laughs> pretty quickly that eventually winter was coming and the men would need someplace more substantial to live. So they got permission to build more permanent and comfortable quarters. They built wood structures and they essentially contracted out to local builders uh, to get those in place. And, and fortunately, they got them up and serviceable before winter came. And it's amazing because that first summer and fall, they constructed um, 1,443 camps, and they described it as the biggest housing project in history. And fortunately, by Thanksgiving, most of the CCC men were in the newly constructed and warmer barracks. And when you see photos of all these different types of housing that were in the camps, they have rows of cots where these men slept, like you said, Matt, like army barracks. Yeah, and I bet they were very happy to have those rows of cots, considering what, where they came from. Right. And, you know, they had to build an entire community. So these barracks had about 50 men in each building, but they also had 
officer staff quarters. They had a medical dispensary. They had a mess hall, a recreation hall, educational building, lavatory and showers, technical and administrative offices, and a tool room and a blacksmith shop and motor pool garages. That was an entire community. It was. It was like a small town. And this is going on all over the country. It's going on not just in Zion, but in newly created state parks and in all of the national parks. So this is just an unbelievable undertaking when you think about it. And in a lot of places, the men spent extra time beautifying their camps. They made gravel paths between the barracks. They planted trees and added outdoor amphitheaters, fish ponds, and flower gardens. And then within the buildings, they built fireplaces of brick and stone adding charm in many different ways to the basic camp plan. I love that. I love that they had the pride in their camp and they they went the extra mile to fix it up in their spare time. All right, let's talk about what they did for fun, their leisure life. (laughs) Now, in Zion, the closest town was Springdale. And during their free time, they could go into town. uh, They could get permission to leave the, the camp. And one of the more popular activities was attending dances. The camp truck, which they had nicknamed the pie wagon, would pick up supplies in town during the week, and it would carry the CCC members into either Hurricane or St. George on the weekends for dances and other social events. And sometimes the camp itself would host dances and would send out invitations to local young women. And some of the members would actually play music as well at these dances. So it sounds like it was probably a really fun time. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to watch them pretty close, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of young men all together working on trails all week and then right. you know, sending invitations out to the local young women. That's uh-huh. right. Yeah. I'm guessing they had some chaperones they, they at the dances. Probably did, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were also very into sports. Yeah, they had basketball, baseball, boxing. Those were popular sports amongst the men. Uh, They had rivalries between teams that uh, they formed within the camps. And, of course, the Army had some experience with uh, young men living together in in small makeshift communities. So uh, the Army had the foresight to issue each camp with a dozen baseballs, six bats, ten gloves, some basketballs, and four sets of eight-ounce boxing gloves. <laughs> yes. you know, if, if they're going to fight, <laughs> might as well uh, put gloves on them and have a little bit of structure to it. Right. And also, appeals went out to civic groups in the local communities near the camps for donations. And soon, shipments of more baseballs, basketballs, and even football equipment came flooding in. And this let the camps field their own teams and stage competitions. And sometimes it was against local men in the communities who were not part of the CCC. Yeah, so this program integrated uh, these young men from all over the country into the local community. So that's just another benefit of this program. And if that wasn't of interest to the men, of course, you know, you have trails and wilderness areas that they could explore and hike. Also on Sundays, uh, some of the men attended church in Springdale. Now, in order for them to be away from camp for the weekend, they had to get a leave pass that was approved by the camp leadership. The CCC men were not allowed to have cars, although some hid their cars in Springdale. (laughs) 
so it was common for them to hitchhike into nearby towns if they had a pass. In addition to the social activities and sporting events, they also had the option of furthering their education. So when this program started in 1933, it was originally called the Emergency Conservation Work Program, and that was changed to the CCC in 1937. And when they made that change, they also required that 10 hours of educational or vocational courses be offered each week. The average CCC member had only completed eight or nine grades of school. So these courses allowed men to supplement their education. And so even though, you know, it was optional if they wanted to attend these classes, a lot of men participated and they learned how to read and write. And they also learned technical skills that helped them find jobs once they left the CCC. All right, let's talk about their clothing. You know, not only did the government need to feed and house the workers, but they had to clothe them as well. So when the men first got to camp, they were usually given two sets of clothing, a blue denim work or fatigue suit and a renovated army olive drab uniform for dress purposes. In 1938, however, President Roosevelt ordered that a special spruce green dress uniform be issued to all the enrollees. While he was visiting a camp at Warm Springs, he had been surprised by the poor quality of the dress uniforms. Shoddy clothing, he believed, weakened morale, and he immediately asked the Department of the Navy to design a special CCC uniform. These were in widespread use by 1939. (laughs) Shoddy clothing. You do not want to have shoddy clothing. And you don't want weakened morale. No, neither. Neither one of those are good. Now, by the time the CCC ended the program in Utah in 1942, 116 camps had been built in the state of Utah and a total of 22,000 local men and 24,000 out-of-state men had been employed. And that's just in Utah alone. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. So that's about a nine to 10 year program and a little taste of what life was like in Zion National Park. Right. I also wanted to mention that I was, as I was reading about this, they said that there were also CCC camps in Bryce Canyon and in Cedar Breaks National Monument. So what they would do when when the weather would get too hot in Zion Canyon in the summer, they would move these men either to Bryce Canyon or to Cedar Breaks and set up tents so they would have some cooler weather. And the opposite was true in the wintertime when the men at Bryce Canyon and the men at Cedar Breaks were freezing because of the you know extra amounts of snow those parks get, they would come down into Zion Canyon and and stay there. So there was a lot of shuffling back and forth depending on the weather. Yeah, it makes sense to move them around seasonally. It does. Yeah. And there were a lot of camps. Zion alone had three separate camps within the park. And it wasn't just Zion National Park. Like you said, pretty much all public lands in the United States had some form of CCC involvement. Right. By 1935, the CCC had hit its stride. Congressmen and senators realized the importance of the camps to their constituencies and political futures. They were swamped with letters, telegrams, and messages demanding the building of new camps in their states. Eventually, there would be camps in all lower 48 states and in Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. 
Yeah, they had a big presence in the Hawaii National Parks. Yes. In Haleakala, they removed invasive plants and feral animals such as pigs and goats. How did the (laughs) pigs and goats get up to the top of Haleakala? I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) If I'm a a feral pig, I'm not sure that uh, going to the top of the highest mountain on the island is is what I'm going to do. No, I don't think so either. (laughs) Going to the beach, I think. Uh, They also constructed the Sliding Sands Trail. We recently talked about that in our mailbag episode, and um, they constructed other trails as well, built some of the backcountry cabins and the front country structures that are still used by the park today. When we did the research, uh, I found this quote from a CCC worker who was interviewed later in in his life, and he said, he said, I was just an ordinary worker but I learned to handle picks and shovels and crowbars. And he said they didn't use dynamite. They did all their work by hand tools, breaking all the stones, making the trails. And the trails were sometimes going through lava formations. All of that, they did it all by hand. I know. That's another amazing part of this entire picture is that they did not have the tools at their disposal like workers have now. So just imagine how much work they had, how much extra work they had to do back then that that has been streamlined now 90 years later. Yeah. So in Hawaii Volcanoes, they also did a lot of work there. And in Alaska, you know, Denali originally started as Mount McKinley National Park, and the CCC came in for two summers. Now, they only stayed in the summer. They they built tent camps. They didn't have the resources to build more permanent structures and stay there all year round. So such a great program that we all are still benefiting from, but the program eventually came to an end uh, because of World War II. When we entered the war in December of 1941, the CCC effort pretty much stopped uh, almost immediately. Congress reappropriated all the funds, and then they formally terminated the program the next year in June 1942. Yes, unfortunately, that was the end of it. But the statistics are amazing. More than 3 million men had served in more than 4,500 camps across the country. So what an incredible program. Yeah, and what a huge benefit to our public lands. We talked about how the CCC impacted our public lands, but how did the CCC impact the young men who served? Yeah, when you think about it, most of these young men had never been away from home or even left the town or city they grew up in. So this must have been a real adventure beyond what they could have ever imagined. Yeah, they wrote letters home to their families talking about, you know, seeing a mountain for the first time and and seeing the Milky Way. Yeah, and just imagine the wild life they must have encountered. I know, back then in all these wilderness areas. There was a lot more wildlife back then. There was definitely a lot more wildlife back then. In addition to the adventure and the skills they learned and the education they received, you know, their work with the CCC gave them a sense of pride as they were able to help support their families back home. I saw a quote that kind of summed it up in four words. Horizons broadened, hope regained. All right, fast forward to today. The men of the CCC are honored and remembered by several organizations. And one we'll mention is the National Association of Civilian Conservation Corps Alumni, uh, and that is the NACCCA. 
Um, And what they're doing is they are funding and building CCC worker statues across the country. And the only reason we know about this, I want to do a shout out to Shelly in Decatur, Illinois. She sent us an email about this CCC worker statue program that quite honestly, we had never heard of before. Yeah, this CCC worker statue program was developed in 1995. I guess uh, one of the chapters, Chapter 129 of Grayling, Michigan, started that program or at least encouraged the program to get, get going. Yes, their program coordinator had the dream to have a statue in every state, and this dream comes closer to reality each year. So to date, members and their supporters have purchased 76 life-size statues across America, and these statues stand as a testament to honor the men who served in the CCC. Yeah, and the first statue to honor the CCC was titled Spirit of the CCC, but then it was later nicknamed Iron Mike. Right, and it's interesting because... This was back in 1935. This was the very first statue, and and at the time, the only statue. It was unveiled by President Franklin D. Roosevelt at, at a dedication at the CCC Company 1917 in Los Angeles, California. But it was nicknamed Iron Mike, and that nickname has stuck with these statues. And we did find out on the website that... You're not supposed to call them Iron Mikes. They don't like the Iron Mike name, do they? No, and I think there is some kind of a legal reason because they have a disclaimer on the website. Please refrain from calling the statue Iron Mike. Yeah, so let's not call them Iron Mikes. Call them CCC worker statues. Right. Now, there is a list of all the statues and their locations on www.ccclegacy.org. As we said, currently there are 76 statues, and they are mostly in state parks, but there are some in a few of the national parks as well. Yeah, and some of those statues are in Zion. There's one in Shenandoah at the Bird Visitor Center, Cuyahoga Valley National Park, which, by the way, Karen, I have a photo of because I took a picture of it when we were there. No way. Yeah. <laughs> of the CCC worker statue? Right, right by the Happy Days Lodge. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I had no idea. I didn't yeah. think we had any. We walked past that lodge, remember, on our big like loop hike. Yeah. And, yeah, I took a picture of it. Oh, my gosh. And... um. There's one in Bandelier National Monument. Yes. And a lot of state parks, like we said, and and national forests. And national forests. Right here in Washington, we have, I think there are eight of them in different state parks, and there is one national forest that we go to frequently up by Mount Baker, that Mount Baker Glacier uh, Ranger Station has one out oh, in do front. They? Yes. So what people do is, I guess it's a thing now, is they travel around the country, they find these CCC worker statues, and they take photos of them. And a lot of people are on a quest to get all 76 of them. I think that would be a fun thing to do. And yeah. now we have one. <laughs> we do. We have one. We need 75 more. We got a lot of uh, checklist items to do in, I know. in your bucket. I know. But here's the thing. So there There is one in Hill City, South Dakota, which we have been to a half a dozen times. There's one there at the Hill City Visitor Center. So it's kind of fun when you look at the list, and we're going to put a link in our show notes, but they have it arranged by state. So if you know you're going to a particular state, you can look up all the CCC worker statues that are in that state. 
Yeah, that'd be fun. I think it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, we're going to have to just dump your bucket out, <laughs> look at all of those things, because there was something else recently that we were supposed to go see all of, and we'll just combine them all. Yes, all right. a very fun thing to do. Okay, Matt, so you know how you are always saying every time we talk about the CCC, you always say we need a new CCC. I do say that. <laughs> uh, it would be great if we could get 3 million young men to work on our public lands. It would be great. But you know, there is a campaign underway, a new nationwide campaign by the National Park Foundation and Carhartt, the company Carhartt, uh, to hire more young people to service core organizations to help out our national parks. Yeah, I guess I guess these uh, service corps workers would help with different environmental projects like restoration projects in our national parks, building trails, bridges, uh, removing invasive species. Got to get rid of those invasive species, mm -hmm. right? Right. And one of the reasons, of course, is the National Park Service, they just don't have enough staff to do all the work that needs to be done. Right. And so not only do members of the service corps get paid to be working outside, but they also learn new skills and they become educated on the challenges facing our environment. So they're trying to recruit 500 new service corps members nationwide. And of course, now in 2023, this would include women yeah, and not just men like in the CCC. So 500 new members uh, to work in the national parks. And that is a fantastic start. It's such a win-win in a lot of ways because not not only would they be putting people to work, but they would be helping our national parks. And these um, young people would be getting some in-demand job skills training. So the president and the CEO of the National Park Foundation, William Shafroth, says, quote, for many participants, Service Corps provides a first-time experience in a national park inspiring a lifelong connection to these special places, end quote. Yeah, that's fantastic. With the way uh, budgets are and deficits these days, I don't think we can rely 100% on the government to fund these programs. And so it's great that both the National Park Foundation and Carhartt, which are non-government entities, are putting their resources together and helping out these programs. So we, we need more private sector like that to pitch in and help. Absolutely. And we will put a link in our show notes to more information on this service core and where you would go to find out more information. You know, Karen, it wasn't until we did the research for this episode that we realized how much the CCC impacted what we do and see in our parks today. In all seriousness, I had no clue. And you know what? I will never look at these parks the same way again. So the next time we're in Pinnacles National Park and we're hiking that amazing High Peaks Trail, we will appreciate the boulders that were moved and the steps that were carved into the stone way up there by the CCC. And next month when we're back at Wind Cave doing a cave tour, we'll be sure to note the work they did sinking the 208-foot elevator shaft installing the concrete steps, and building the walk-in entrance to the cave. Yes, I'm definitely going to see that with new eyes, fresh eyes. You know, there is a lot of information online, and it just might be fun if you are as enthralled by this as we are. You could do some research online and find out what the CCC did in your state or in your favorite park. 
And then you'll know the next time you visit, when you're walking on a trail or you're walking down some steps, that the men of the CCC are there. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode about the CCC. We hope that this information has opened your eyes, as it did ours, about the invaluable work the CCC did and the profound impact it had on our public lands. Thank you.